On today's broadcast, my, my personal ultimate carnivore prescription for strength, performance, and longevity. So I think you're gonna like this one, so stay tuned. All right, we're back everybody, and I've been planning this video for a while. Thanks for being here. Thanks for coming back to the channel. If this is your first time, you know the drill. I need your help. If you appreciate this free content that I throw out there on occasion, then do me the honor of hitting that subscribe button, the little notification bell, da -de da you know all the stuff. Uh, it really goes a long way in helping uh, getting this content pushed out to other like-minded people who might enjoy these types of shenanigans in my in this YouTube space that we're in. You know, this video really started, or the content in this video really started way back in 20 or in 2009, when I really went full steam into a paleo or what I at that time called an ancestral approach to eating. I'd come out of the bodybuilding world, had started dabbling in some endurance sports and wanted to be more of a hybrid or well-rounded athlete at that time and uh, stumbled onto a lot of wonderful information about uh, paleo diets and ancestral health diets. And uh, it was really from an obscure article that I read in a triathlon magazine of all things that got me started down that path and started reading the likes of uh, Art Devaney, Mark Sisson, Rob Wolf, and then, you know, it just took a life of its own from there. And then in 2010, after going down many, many rabbit holes, I dove headfirst into a ketogenic diet and was kind of doing that, minding my own business, enjoying the fruits of that, experimenting with it, sort of, you know, going through the paces of that, trying to really turn the knobs on that to make it work best for me. And then in 2014, something kind of crazy happened. I kind of got this bug. I decided I was going to go back into the bodybuilding world and finally um, endeavor to stand on stage and do a competition. And pouring through everything that I knew about human performance, strength training, nutrition, performance nutrition, um, I felt very strongly that I would have to develop a, a bit of a hybrid approach to that in order to compete at a high level in bodybuilding competition. Now, I think everybody's a bodybuilder. If you are endeavoring to be the best that you can possibly be by building lean muscle, by dieting, by, by making yourself a stronger, better person that has greater longevity, greater health, then you are building your body. Hence, you are a bodybuilder. But I went into the competitive bodybuilding world for almost a decade. Started back in 2014. And I figured out very quickly for me to optimize that and to be able to stand toe to toe with uh, some very, very talented, hardworking people on stage. Um, I made it a bit of a hybrid where I did use some carbohydrate matter um, around my training. And you, many of you who've been following me for a while know the story behind that. And I've taken a lot of heat for that over years, really don't care because the proof is in the pudding. And I also didn't go super, super high fat with that approach, even though I think fat is a critical macronutrient. And in most cases, it's usually uh, might be the most critical in some applications. I, I really felt that going and optimizing protein was going to be the way to go for my particular goals and uh, not having a lot of metabolic damage, a lot of metabolic stress. Uh, uh, I finally realized that the best approach for me and in turn, turns out wound up being the best approach for many, many clients who put their trust and faith in me as a coach that we would A, optimize protein, B, we would bring fat in according to output goals, performance goals, 
whatever the case may be at that time. And then carbs would be used as a productive tool only in small amounts under certain circumstances and certain occasions. For me, that was usually around training efforts. That worked really, really well. 2015, the keto wave hit, it went completely bonkers. And the next thing I knew, I was kind of quietly doing my thing. And then the floodgates opened and, and all of a sudden people wanted me to help them either develop a ketogenic diet protocol, or as it turned out, it wound up being more of me fixing their ketogenic diet because many people started down that road, hit some kind of a plateau, Things weren't working out quite as well as advertised by some of the other you know, influencers out there in the space. And they knew that I was utilizing a hybrid ketogenic model to aid in my performance and to be able to still uh, do bodybuilding competition, which is you know, no small task to be sure. So that's how I really got into the space and had a very successful and have a very successful Facebook group. And then Something happened along the way. Uh, you know, I intended to just do one show and, you know, I got the bug, enjoyed the process, enjoyed the competition element. And I knew that by being in this competitive bodybuilding space, it would only make me a better coach and trainer for my clients. And as I said, those out there who put their trust and faith in me and, you know, the, the, the rest is history there. So I was doing very, very well. And in 2019, I made a bit of a shift through ongoing research and then a rational, logical approach to everything that I do that's tested in the trenches. I went and adopted more of a carnivore style methodology with my nutrition protocol in the middle of a rigorous competition prep. I wanted to take it to another level. I'd still not won a class in competition. I'd play second, I'd place third, I'd come close and I wanted to take it another level. So I decided to eliminate nearly all vegetable matter from the mix, go more carnivore, experimenting with the different ins and outs of the carnivore protocol. And the, to be honest, we're, this whole carnivore thing is still kind of new. We're, we'll st we're still learning many, many things. And I knew some things would kind of rise to the surface if I gave it time. So I really didn't, you know, make it a part of my brand until actually this year, earlier this year, when I took more of the approach of, of literally calling it carnivore bodybuilding as opposed to ketogenic bodybuilding. I'd, I'd taken that evolutionary step in my own personal path and with many of the clients that put their faith in me. But once again, a lot of what ended up happening is it wasn't uh, always what you're seeing out there from a lot of the top influencers out there. Uh, there was some nuance to it that I was discovering. See, I'm a practitioner. I'm a clinician. I'm in the trenches working with people in real time, including myself, and really uh, paying very, very close attention to outcomes as they come to me in real time, working with real people very, very closely. And uh, so now on this video, it's sort of me chronicling what has occurred over time and what I've seen uh, to be the most, su most successful in many cases, not all, and we're gonna talk about that, and that's why this is important, uh, and uh, sort of walk you through what I have personally found to be the best approach in coming to conclusions on how to um, prescribe this for clients and uh, to, to make intelligent decisions on how things need to be manipulated from each individual. Now, 
Here is a very important disclaimer that I've been saying for my entire career. So pay attention, please. I do not believe in a one-size-fits-all blanket approach to this stuff. There are people out there in the carnivore space that believe that it must be some version of what many call now like a lion diet, where just red meat, salt, and water, or some variation of that. If that is your thing, and you are thriving on that, and you're intellectually honest with yourself, and by doing that version of a carnivore diet, that is giving you what you feel is your best opportunity to thrive, keep doing what you're doing. Did you get that? Keep doing what you're doing. Because one of the things that I don't like about this carnivore space, before that the ketogenic space, is people get so zeroed in onto one simple ideology, and then it becomes this hill that they die on to go out and say that everyone across the board should do this. And what I have personally discovered, this is my opinion based on what I have found through not only personal experience and the scientific literature and history, I believe this is the most logical, rational approach to a carnivore diet. So again, if you're watching this and you think what I'm saying you know, invalidates me in the carnivore community, then I'm very sorry. But I'm sorry, I just don't see it that way. And what also makes me believe what I'm saying has massive validity is that I have dozens of documented cases of people that I've worked with and made some subtle to large changes in how they consume food and have seen dramatic difference, differences and changes for the better in many, many cases. Now, conversely, there are people that I do personally work with that we really can't give much carbohydrate to. We definitely can't give much vegetable matter to. And there's a reason for that. And we're going to talk about that later in this video, so stay tuned. But once again, I want to make it very, very clear. Just because that you don't agree with my interpretation, my philosophy, and my ideology doesn't make it wrong. Because I assure you there are people out there who have made some of these subtle changes that I'm going to recommend potentially today that have worked dramatically well. And there are some out there that it didn't. But what I've also found is the people that my approach helps seem to be the majority and the people that it didn't help seem to be the outliers. That's just my personal experience. And you can't fault me for that. Again, please pay attention. I don't have any weird emotional attachments to this stuff. You know, I am a coach first and foremost. People hire me to work with them one-on-one -on -one to take them someplace that they hope to achieve, to achieve some sort of physical health related uh, outcome or some physical or aesthetic outcome. And that's what I do. So if what I'm prescribing to these real people doesn't work, then I don't work with them anymore. I lose my job. I'm not just out here selling books or, or $49 programs. I'm selling coaching. That's how I make my living. And that's how I've done it for 30 years. So I'm legitimately going to tell you what I truly feel in my heart of hearts makes the most logical, rational sense for most people. And you can take it 
for whatever it's worth. You can choose to say, eh, I can already tell that maybe not, might not be the best thing for me. Or you can say to yourself, you know what, what I am doing is working, but perhaps it's not optimal because some of the things this guy is saying, well, that resonates with me. And some of these things may have happened. And there isn't always just one way to skin a cat, whatever that means. You know, some of the things that I advocate differ somewhat from some what other coaches or influences out there uh, suggest to do for certain problems or issues that may arise on these diets. My approach is what I feel works best. Maybe their approach is different, but they arrive at the same place, which makes it all good. And one more thing I want to say about the carnivore space, the ketogenic space. It irritates me that there's, been so, that there's been so much infighting within the community about tiny details. Like, oh my God, you, you drink coffee, you should be stricken from the club. You should be outed for that. Oh, I occasionally have a piece of fruit or I occasionally have some vegetables. Let's you know, ostracize that guy and get rid of him. Well, I think that's just ridiculous. I think that is exquisite bullshit. I think if all of us would unite under one universal umbrella, even though we have certain differences in the way we do things, we can all agree that if we use our collective knowledge for good and turn around and face the millions of people out there who are on a standard American diet or a processed food laden diet or a super, super high carb diet or have serious issues or maybe even a vegan or vegetarian diet, which I do not think is a good idea for anyone. Maybe we can actually start helping some people rather than infighting amongst ourselves. I just wanted to get that out there. That's a whole nother conversation. So my prescription, number one, we have to understand some definitions, some terms, and then I'm just going to sort of elaborate on, on, on that and just sort of tell you where I'm at with all this stuff. And it will either resonate with you or you will decide probably not for me. I'm good with that either way, but I think it's important for me to state my position ultimately. Number one, the way I eat, I classify as a hyper carnivore diet. Now, the term hyper carnivore diet is a legitimate definition. Definitions do matter. It is a legitimate definition that you can look up either in text or on online through a search. A hyper carnivore by definition this is not, I'm not making this up. This is by definition. A hypercarnivore is an animal, manimal, or living organism that uh, consumes 70% or more of their diet through animal-based sources. So if you're consuming 70% or more of your food from animal-based sources, then you are a hypercarnivore. And really, the term hypercarnivore is often shortened down just to carnivore. You know, uh... I think that the hypercarnivore approach is the most sustainable and logical approach for human beings. That's just my opinion. You don't have to agree with me. That's just my opinion based on my personal experience and my level of research that I have uh, engaged in over many, many years. So you have to understand that, and this is going to ruffle some feathers, and I'm giving some very broad strokes here. I'm not giving fine details. But there really hasn't been a tribe or a culture or a society that I have come across or been able to find that subsisted for a very long time on only cooked muscle meat. 
That's it. I just haven't been able to find that. Now, here's the thing. Before modern agriculture, the Industrial Revolution, you know, Neolithic times, way back in our ancestral past, from hunter-gatherer days on back, we were hypercarnivores. That's just my opinion. And that's just based on the research that I have done and the logic, logical, rational uh, part of that uh, time in our history. You see, during that time, through most of our existence, we had a survival hierarchy. Okay, so bear, stick with me here. For most of our existence, before the Industrial Revolution, before the modern era, we had a survival hierarchy. The, the most important things that we had to engage in daily in order to survive. Well, what were those? Let's think about that. Number one, and this is in no particular order, by the way. It's no, no particular order because you can make an argument that water might be number one. It's part of the list. But killing an animal and utilizing it, consuming it nose to tail. That was part of our, part of our survival hierarchy, okay? Because that was the food that human beings craved and was the most nutrient dense food for human survival. And in addition to that, beyond what we consumed for nutrition, we used for tools, we used for clothing, you know, we extracted marrow from the bones, the list goes on and on. We ate the organs, everything. We, nothing was left uh, of that animal that wasn't consumed. And, you know, a hypercarnivore also by definition is, you know, someone or some, you know, species or, or tribe or culture, animal, mammal that consumed 70% or more of their diet from animal-based sources from either hunting or scavenging. What might be left over after, say, a lion kills a gazelle out on an African plain? We, we would get the leftovers because we were very clever as human beings with our big brains. Right? So back to the survival hierarchy. Part of the survival hierarchy, the basic survival hierarchy of humans was, number one, kill an animal and eat it nose to tail. That made so much sense. That, that's what furthered us as a species. It wasn't from being freaking vegans, I can tell you that. We never would have survived as a species as vegetarians or vegans. It just would not have been possible, okay? So number two in the survival hierarchy would have been water. Clearly, you have to have water to survive. Number three would have been fire, warmth, and shelter, right? And then beyond that, procreation, survival of the species. We were very simple creatures way back in the day. We had to have water, we craved fire, warmth, shelter. We sought animals and killed them and consumed them nose to tail for you know, multiple survival purposes. And the goal was to further the species and make more human beings. Now, beyond that survival hierarchy, we were creatures of opportunity. We were, and that's the part that get lost, gets lost sometimes within this, you know, carnivore space. What does that mean? Well, in most geographical regions, especially at or below the equator, we weren't just eating cooked muscle meat, okay? Again, part of our survival hierarchy was to kill that animal and eat it nose to tail. But beyond that, we were creatures of opportunity. In other words, if we were out on a hunt or we were just out in nature doing whatever we did, and if we were to stumble across a raspberry bush or a blackberry bush or any kind of a fruit tree, 
If it happened to be ripe and in season at that time, what would we do? We would pick it clean. We would gorge ourselves on that ripe fruit and then take what we didn't consume back to our family, our tribe, our community for others to enjoy. Or if we came across you know, a beehive or a honeycomb, we would devour that, not only eating the honey, but the larva that was inside. That was good protein. We would eat some root tubers. We would eat wild flowers. We would eat some vegetables. Although you can make the argument that vegetables would be probably the least consumed thing because most vegetables in nature can be very, very toxic. And certain preparations had to be done to make those uh, vegetables edible. And during that time, you know, most leaves and plants were very bitter and kind of nasty, to be honest with you. So they were way, way down the list in the gathering protocol. And as far as, part as being uh, you know, creatures of opportunity, that would have been the least desirable thing to harvest. You know, and also part of the survival hierarchy would have been, you know, certain root tubers and insects. As disgusting as that sounds... Our ancestors ate a lot of insects. Now, I'm not advocating eating insects. Thankfully, we live in a time now where that's no longer necessary. Although there are certain powers that be out there that would love for you to stop consuming the meat that you're consuming and switch to insects. But that's solely for political purposes and monetary gain. So don't buy into that horse shit either. Cow, cow farts are not killing us. So we had the survival hierarchy during you know, the greater part of our human existence. And beyond that, we were creatures of opportunity. So as I said, geographically, you know, especially at or below the equator, there were other opportunities, things we would eat. But all in all, we were still craving that fatty meat and every part of that animal. That was really, truly part of the survival hierarchy. So people often say, OK, you, you make a good point. I guess we were eating some things outside of just meat. And it wasn't always cooked meat. Now, I'm not one of these people that's saying that you have to eat raw food only. I think, you know, we've evolved. We discovered fire. Fire, good. Nothing wrong with cooking your damn ribeye, okay? However, people often bring up certain Arctic cultures, cold weather cultures way back in the day and say, well, well, they didn't have vegetables. They didn't have fruits. All they ate was animal-based foods. This could be very true for some cultures, especially very Arctic cultures, like the Inuit. However, a lot of what they eat was raw. They drank a lot of blood, and they did consume some raw dairy. Contained in raw meat and raw organs especially, there is some carbohydrate. There's some carbohydrate in the blood that they drank. There was glycogen in the blood. And in raw dairy also contains some lactose and, you know, dairy sugar. Now, it wasn't a huge amount, but it was there. It was part of what they eat. And the Inuit also had a genetic adaptation that made sometimes, you know, long-term ketosis has dangers and side effects. Well, the Inuit evolved and had a genetic mutation to, you know, sort of overlap that, which was kind of cool. So again, to suggest that we've only just been eating steaks with salt and water as a species never really occurred until really this time in our human existence. Now, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. Clearly, there are many, many people out there who are just eating cooked meat, salt and water, and they're doing great. Some are. And I think that's a fantastic thing. I'm not suggesting you should change that. 
I'm just saying it wasn't the norm. So if we have now currently evolved and made some adaptations to where we can consume only steak, salt, and water and thrive on that, then I say, if that's working for you, great. But if you feel like you've been doing that long-term and it may not be optimal anymore, then maybe some subtle nuances need to be changed in the way that you look at how you feed yourself. So my point is, is we had the survival hierarchy, but beyond that, the reason a hypercarnivore diet has a legitimate definition of 70% or more, because that's more probably closely to how we survived as a species uh, on average over the very, very long term up before the Industrial Revolution, modern agriculture, and all these things. You know, Asian, Asian cultures cultivated a lot and consumed a lot of rice. There were certain cultures that, you know, consumed root tubers and potatoes. You know, there are many, many cultures as we got more into biblical times where, you know, created, created a lot of bread, you know, unleavened bread, even sourdough kind of stuff. I think any of those cultures would agree that that wasn't the ideal food to consume. They still craved fatty meat. That was the goal. But they knew in order to feed a large society that they had to cultivate certain foods and store them to be able to feed the masses. This is how the modern agri agriculture movement came to be. Now, I'm not sitting here saying you should eat the majority of your food from rice and potatoes, but I am saying perhaps a small amount of that might be warranted and you might even get a positive effect from that. And I'm going to explain that. So my hypercarnivore prescription is this. I believe that you should, based on performance purposes, you should prioritize protein, which means what's the best sources of protein? Well, it's not pea protein powder, I can tell you that. It's going to be animal-based protein. It's going to be meat, eggs, fish, and the like. That's going to be your most ideal source of protein. So we prioritize protein first. And for most people that I work with, that's going to be somewhere in the area of 1 to up to even 1.5 grams of protein per pound of goal body weight for most people. Now, that's kind of a broad stroke. You know, when I work with clients one-on-one, -on -one, we make more pinpoint accurate uh, interpretations of that calculation that's best suited to them and then monitor it and make any adjustments as we go. But as a broad stroke, that's somewhere in the neighborhood of where most people should begin. And that hopefully will get you into, you know, we want to work towards being in that 30 to 40% protein range. And at the harder you train or the more of an athlete you are, maybe the greater the requirement will be. And the older that you are, the greater the requirement will be because sarcopenia, the inevitable loss of muscle mass is a thing. And to stave that off, we need to make sure we're getting adequate protein. And as we age, getting in a proper amount of protein is the most critical thing, hands down. And the great thing about protein is, is you can consume a lot of it. It doesn't want to store as body fat. It wants to repair cells and tissue. It has a job. And if you're trying to sustain whatever lean mass you currently have and potentially put on more, which muscle is life, it's the most important thing you can rely on as we age, basically from the, from the age of 35 or over, that needs to be what we focus hard on. So we prioritize protein. And then dietary fat is consumed basically according to your goals or where you're at with your uh, uh, output. 
You know, if you're a hard training athlete, a bodybuilder, a crossfitter, or an ultra marathoner, you know, you may require a little more. And if you're trying to get to an aesthetic goal where you're going to be at very low levels of body fat to produce that required look that you're looking for, then you may need to dial the fat back a bit so the body is utilizing its own stored fat more than the exogenous fat that you're taking in. <laughs> Ask any bodybuilder. If there's anybody out there that knows how to get super freaking lean, it's a bodybuilder. And most of them reduce fat as they get closer to stage time and they prioritize the protein and they lower their carbs. So we wanna prioritize protein, we wanna bring in fat according to your uh, output, your goals, your genetics, your age, all of these factors, and then that leaves us carbohydrate. Now, this is the point where everybody starts throwing knives at the screen at me, because I can sit here and tell people, uh, here's an example, and this happens to me a lot. People can ask me what I eat because they've heard, you know, you, you call yourself this keto guy or you call yourself this carnivore guy and, and you're eating all these carbs. No, I'm not. But carbohydrates have been demonized so bad by the carnivore and keto community that everybody thinks five grams of carbs is all of a sudden going to be a death sentence. It's the devil, right? So I can tell somebody how I eat throughout the course of a day which almost always starts with either ground beef and eggs or steak and eggs, almost every single day. I would say if you looked at an entire year, I would say 90% of that year, the first thing I eat every day is either gonna be steak and eggs or ground beef and eggs. I think it's one of the most perfect meals. Nutrient density off the charts, everything your body needs, everything a growing boy needs to be big and strong, 100%. Whether it's to build muscle, to get lean, to have optimized hormonal output, to be thriving, to boost your testosterone, any good thing that happens in the body, steak and eggs is a damn miracle pill. Truly is. It might be the most powerful level, lever you can pull, but it's been demonized because they're going to tell you that's going to raise your cholesterol, da, 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 da. All of that is bullshit, by the way. So I can start my day with steak and eggs or ground beef and eggs or, or some version of that. And then oftentimes, and we're going to cover this here shortly, so, so stay tuned. Hold on to your knickers. This is going to get good. I might have 25 to 35 grams of carbohydrate prior to training. Sometimes that could be a damn banana. Sometimes it could be a little cream of rice or some white rice. Sometimes a little bit of potato or it could be something as simple as a rice cake with a little bit of honey on it. And then I consume that, I go through very, very high intensity training in the weight room. Sometimes I then go do, you know, jujitsu or striking workout. And then I might go on a 40 minute strenuous ruck with 65 pounds on my back on dynamic terrain. Or I might decide to go do some drills on a heavy bag. A lot of damn output. And then after that workout session is over, whatever it may be, then I'm back to what? Meat and eggs. That's how I eat. So I can have this day comprised of all of this meat, all of these eggs. It could be steak, fish, poultry, pork, shellfish, eggs, you name it. Maybe a little bit of raw dairy. And what's everybody going to focus on? <laughs> the damn banana. It's just insanity, insanity to me. 
And I can justify the use of that banana or that rice cake or that rice for me and for many clients that I work with. Because sometimes it has its place. Remember, we are hyper carnivores, 70% or more of your diet being consumed from animal-based sources. That other 30% is pretty much open to interpretation. You just have to be careful with the sources that you choose based on your own individual tolerances, okay? All right, so here's a key point in this video that everybody keeps asking me about when I talk about it briefly in Facebook group posts or on Instagram or mention it here on my YouTube channel. There are two types of people. I sort of had this epiphany recently. There are two types of people. You're either, you either have a carbohydrate tolerance or you have a carbohydrate threshold. You're one of the two. Now, if you're one, let, let me remind you before everybody, you know, everybody pull your underwear out of your pants, okay? Or out of your butt. <laughs> yeah, that one. If you do not want to consume any carbohydrates at all, and that works really well for you, and you're really happy with that, and you're banging that drum all day long to everybody that'll listen to you, it's okay. You can keep doing that. I'm not talking to you. But if you are doing that and you feel like something may be a bit off, then let me entertain you with some information and let me raise an argument. So there are two types of people in my opinion because I work with a lot of people one-on-one -on -one and I've saved a lot of damn people. And I've gotten some amazing results both from just the average human who's trying to be better and for those who want to go through a more Herculean goal and perhaps stand on stage in a physique competition. But there are two types of people that I generally work with, those who have uh, a, a carb threshold or a carb tolerance. If you have a carb tolerance, that means that you are more metabolically disturbed. Over time, because of excess carbohydrates or processed foods, too much seed oils combined with those carbohydrates, in other words, just a shit diet, far too often for far too long, you have some, some metabolic damage or distress has occurred. You have metabolic symptoms, metabolic syndrome, okay? Or some sort of a, a disease that uh, was brought on by a very shitty diet for far too long. You could have leptin resistance, you could be insulin resistant, you could be pre-diabetic or type two diabetic. Somewhere along the lines, you have taken in too much shit and you have created some severe distress. So you may have a carbohydrate uh, um, tolerance, meaning there's only a certain amount of carbohydrate from only very specific sources that you can tolerate. Otherwise, everything just goes off the rails. And you know who you are if I'm talking to you. Now, I get a lot of clients that are more you know, high-performing people who work out in the gym, who train hard, who are metabolically healthy, who just like how they feel, how they perform on a lower-carb diet that puts more emphasis on protein and fat. That's who we are. That's who I am. That's the, many of the people that I coach. But those amounts are going to vary to the individual. I have some people who thrive on 100 grams of carbs a day, and some I can't give any more than 10 to. Now, there are some who think they can't have any more than 10 who actually can. They've just been terrified by people out there in the space to think that eating 10 grams of carbs is going to make their heads explode. And it's not. So we just have to be intelligent with this. 
So you either have uh, a carbohydrate uh, tolerance or, or a carbohydrate threshold. So if I determine that my client has a carbohydrate tolerance issue, then I can only give them so much carbohydrate and it may be a very small amount. And we need to determine with that client, which carbohydrate sources they can tolerate. And it's often not vegetables, <laughs> you know, and it's certainly not simple sugars or anything very high glycemic. So we have to figure out what works for them and find that sweet spot. Remember with everything, it's not how much or how little it's the precise amount required for that individual. So those people are a bit unique. Now, many people that I work with have a carbohydrate threshold. I have a carbohydrate threshold. The amount that I can take in that gives me a performance benefit that serves a particular purpose, and there is a certain threshold that I can reach where if I go beyond that threshold, it is no longer productive or necessary. And I know what that is for me. We have to determine what it is for you. So what do I mean by that? I'm going to give you the example of something that I do for a lot of people, including myself, and I get a lot of heat for this. I don't care. If you don't like it, go elsewhere. Keep doing your thing. And I encourage you to do that. And I'm on your team. But for me and many of the people I coach, here we are. Number one, a lot of people come to me. We, let me back up. We have learned some things over the most recent years because we've actually had a period of time to look at certain individual outcomes from people on long-term ketogenic diets and fairly long-term carnivore diets. Here's some things that we're discovering from some in that space. Some are having some issues with heart palpitations. Some people are having issues with hair loss. Some people are having issues with the conversion of T4 to T3 and thyroid output. That's not a good thing. I have males coming to me whose testosterone has dropped dramatically. Their SHBG has elevated. That's not a good thing at all. They're coming to me with problems from long-term ketosis or long-term super, super low-carb diets, more on the carnivore side. And oftentimes, we either give them more nutrition because maybe they were starving themselves, but many times, and usually beyond that, we give them a small carbohydrate intervention, and a lot of these problems are alleviated. Now, I know there's a, a, a hundred people out there that are going to say, well, that's because of this, or that's because of that, or we could have done it with this. That's fine. There's, there's, more, there's more than one way to skin a cat, like I said. I've just found that this has worked phenomenally well for myself and people who've put their faith in me, who have come to me with some of these issues or concerns. So I have given people a small amount of carbohydrates in the right amount at the right time for certain individuals from the right sources. And we have fixed the issues with their thyroid conversion. We've raised their testosterone. We've improved their performance in the gym or on the road or in the CrossFit box, whatever you're into. We've seen the hair loss thing get you know, stopped in its tracks and go the other direction. We've seen people who are having sleeplessness, insomnia, certain things. They just don't do well on a long-term ketogenic diet or a long-term carnivore diet. So we bring in a small amount of carbohydrate or maybe you know, play with the fat and protein you know, ratios. But we dig in, we roll up our sleeves, and we find out what's going to work best for them. And typically, this hyper-carnivore approach 
does the trick. Not, like I said, I'm not just making this up. You know, I don't, it doesn't benefit me or my business to have this approach. I'm just relaying what I have found as a practitioner. There are practitioners and there are theorists. Theorists are people who generally aren't working in the trenches with people. Their job is to just kind of crunch numbers and, and look at the, the evidence on paper. I'm a practitioner. I'm working with real people, people coming to me with real concerns. And when I really saw this happening is when I started doing my 90-minute consultations. We uncover so much in these 90-minute consultations. It's just like this awakening where I can really sit down with somebody one-on-one -on -one and walk through this stuff. And we see these things happening over and over and over again. And then they may start working me for either a short-term or a long-term period and we're seeing a lot of these things being corrected. Performance is improving. Muscle is being built. Body composition is changing. They're sleeping like rocks. Their blood work improves. Testosterone goes up. Hormonal output improves. Thyroid health improves. General clarity improves. All of these things. And sometimes it's just with the smallest amount. So to say that everyone across the board, 100%, should be on a strict all-meat carnivore diet, that's just not intellectually honest. Now, I think animal-based carnivore diet, that is the species-appropriate diet, but I like the term hypercarnivore. And one last thing about that is for many, if not most people, it's more sustainable. I will occasionally have onions you know why? Because I like onions. I've said this before. You could put onions on a flip-flop and I'd eat it. I dig them. Sometimes I put onions, like I will have a bowl of ground beef with some chopped onions. Sometimes I will have some variety of meat with some sauteed onions, sauteed in grass-fed butter and garlic put on top of that big, beautiful hunk of steak and I enjoy it. I haven't died yet. Now, I did notice a vast improvement and a massive reduction in vegetable sources. Massive. So I'm on board with you guys there. But a little bit of something here or there, I think is very sustainable and just fine for most people. You just have to determine what it is. If it's a particular food that you don't agree with, then avoid that one. Eliminate it. But I can eat some onions and be perfectly fine. I can eat sauteed cabbage and butter and garlic and be perfectly fine. Now, I can't, I don't do well on, on raw greens. Spinach and broccoli, I don't do well with that at all. I get bloated and gassy and feel like dog shit. I don't do well on breads unless it's homemade sourdough that's yeast free. So when I do have some carbohydrate matter, I'll, I'll use rice-based sources or I'll have potato-based sources or I'll have some fruit like organic berries or maybe an organic banana. I do just fine on that. Now I'm not gonna sit here and tell you like a certain very popular carnivore influencer out there who's advocating eating four or five, 600 grams of fructose all day long and claiming that that's the prescription for everyone. That's not intellectually honest either. 
I have certain clients that I've, I gave them 400 grams of fruit a day. They'd be completely freaking destroyed. But what I'm saying is, as a little bit of carbohydrate at the right times and the right amount can have a positive impact on many people in addition to their very strict hypercarnivore protocol coming from beautiful animal-based sources. Lots of meat, lots of eggs, right? So let me walk you through a scenario as to how I utilize it, how I do it, because you're a nuts and bolts person, right? You're like, okay, tell me exactly what you do. Okay, this is what I do. So I mentioned my steak and eggs or my ground beef and eggs that I have earlier in the day. Okay, so I do have that every day, almost exclusively. And then that's usually around 7 a.m. And I will have a cup or two of coffee. Don't freak out. I'm also mindful to have some water or an element pack prior to my coffee because that helps suppress some cortisol output. And I enjoy a cup of coffee. I know this excludes me from the club, so be it. I'll start my own club. So anyway, I have my steak and eggs or my ground beef and eggs, usually around 7, sometimes 8 a.m. And then I usually train around 11 a.m., high-intensity strength training in the gym. So if I'm going to start hitting it hard at 11 o'clock, then I usually have anywhere from 25 to 35 grams of carbohydrate, sometimes with protein, sometimes without protein, at about 10, 15 a.m., 10, 20 a.m. Oftentimes, this could be a serving of cream of rice with maybe a scoop of whey protein in it. It could be some cream of rice with some chicken chunks in it that I've sauteed in butter. Sometimes it's just the cream of rice. Sometimes it's some white rice. I don't do brown rice. It's tough on the gut. It could be some white rice. It could be a rice cake or two with a little bit of raw local honey on it. It could just be a banana. But I will consume that 25 to 35 grams of carbohydrate about 30 to 40 minutes prior to training. Now, here's what happens when I do that. Number one, yes. Now, everybody out there, you know, the hardcore dogmatic zealots are going to say, Oh, you're going to get an insulin secretion. Yes. Oh, it's going to shut off fat burning. Yes. All of these things are true. And I'm okay with that. Because many in the space have demonized not only carbohydrates, but they've demonized the insulin bump that comes with the consumption of carbohydrates, like it's something that's going to completely make your head explode as well. Now, we know a tidal wave of insulin throughout the day a constant cascade of it is a terrible thing and could lead to distress. But a small bump in insulin throughout the day can have a benefit and important impact on our physiology and our goals. Remember, it's not how much or how little, it's the precise amount required for whatever the goal is. So back to my scenario, I have my 25 to 35 grams of carbohydrates prior to hard training. Now, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to start training in the gym with weights, very high intensity. If you know anything about me, I advocate very, very high, high intensity training in the shortest amount of time possible. For me, that's usually 30 to 40 minutes, and that's with a couple of workout partners. We go hard. We're working most sets to failure. We're crushing it. Now, 
this is going to make people lose their minds. And I found it a little bit surprising myself because I used to be on the other side of this camp. For high, super high intensity muscular contractions, I'm sorry, but carbohydrate is still the most optimal fuel source for that. I'm not saying fat is bad. In fact, it, it can do just a fine job. But the most optimal for high intensity muscular contractions is carbohydrate. So I have my 25 to 35 grams of carbs. I start training my ass off at 11 a.m. So yes, my fat burning mechanism has been turned off. If I was in any form of ketosis, that is gone. I'm okay with that. So my body is now utilizing the carbohydrate, the glycogen, to fuel my high intensity muscular contractions through my workout. So I'm digging that. I'm training like a fucking beast. That's a good thing, okay? So though my fat burning mechanism has been turned off for that short amount of time, and because I am secreting some insulin because of the presence of that carbohydrate, I'm okay with that because why? By eating that carbohydrate, the carbohydrate and subsequently the insulin bump that comes with it are both anti-catabolic, meaning I'm not going to burn any muscle, I'm not going to borrow from the protein that I've consumed, convert it via gluconeogenesis and use it as glycogen. And I'm okay with that too. Because the way I see it during that intense training, that gluconeogenesis is kind of a backup system. I'd prefer just to go right to the main source of gasoline. So by having that bump in insulin uh, occur, yes, I have shut off the fat burning mechanism, but as I said, the carbohydrate and the insulin is anti-catabolic and it's anabolic. So it's protein sparing, it's not muscle wasting, and it helps promote anabolism, which is the addition of lean muscle mass. Can you build muscle on a zero carb diet? Yes. Is it the most optimal? I'm not convinced. So again, if you're doing your training, your bodybuilding, whatever you're doing on zero carbs and it's working for you, boom, keep going. But I have people coming to me that have tried it over and over and over again. And I know they're not lying because I work with them. And when we try the small intervention of carbohydrates around training, everything seems to click and they dig that. So I have my carbohydrate. Yes, I'm out of ketosis. My fat burning mechanism is shut off for that short amount of time, but I'm okay with that because I'm more concerned with crushing it in the gym and activating anabolism and preserving what lean muscle mass I have. Now, by the conclusion of that workout, those 25 to 35 grams of carbs are gone. And if they're not, they'll be shortly. Because as you know, that rate of metabolic rate, even post-workout from strength training, goes on for a while. So I'll be chewing through that small amount of, of glycogen that I consumed in no time flat. And then once that is over, I go right back to my normal you know, way of animal-based eating. I'm back to meat, I'm back to eggs, I'm back to fish, poultry, whatever. Back, back to animal, back to meat, back to carnivore. So, some other, a couple other things that may not be important to some of you, but may be very important to some of you. What's the other cool thing about having those carbohydrates right before I train? 
Well, I'm going to have a ridiculous pump. Who doesn't like a good pump when they're in the gym? Now, somebody out there is going to say, you can get just as good a pump on salt. Hmm, you know what's even better than that? Carbs and salt. If you want to be vascular as shit and get this real fullness in the muscle, which who doesn't like that? And that's the reason why I did that when I was a competitive bodybuilder, because when I was going to finish that workout and go evaluate my physique in the mirror, I wanted the best possible example of what I was trending toward to looking on stage, because you know I'm going to carb up before I go on stage. And I think every physique competitor on earth should. So I get the benefit of this massive vascularity, because I do combine a lot of sodium with the carbohydrate that I have, that I have pre-workout. So I'm going to get this ridiculous pump this ridiculous vascularity. I get this amazing energy boost. I crush my workout in the gym. I've created an environment for growth and the preservation of lean mass to occur. And then not long after that workout has ended, those carbs are freaking gone. And I'm happy as a damn clam going right back to my strict carnivore ways. When I do this, my workouts are outstanding. My rucks are fantastic. I sleep great. I perform well. And I'm 55 years old this year. I turned 55 in November. My blood work is great. I haven't filled a prescription in 17 years. And when I did, it was for a painkiller that I didn't use. I often say that the drugstore, like a CVS or a Walgreens, that's just where you buy emergency toilet paper. Now, I know there are people in the back behind glass wearing these white coats. I'm not sure what they do back there. I, I never go back that far. So if the small intervention of carbohydrates that I consume or the occasional chopped onions in my ground beef is going to kill me, well, it's taking forever. And my life, my way of eating is sustainable. There are others out there in this space who have adopted more of a hyper-carnivore style. Lily Kane comes to mind. And there's a few others. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not fighting against my brothers and sisters in the carnivore space or in the ketogenic space. I'm simply saying there's room for all of us. And based on my personal experiences as a full-time coach, and I've been coaching for 30 years, every type of individual under the sun that you could possibly imagine. And I've been doing it through this hyper carnivore style of methodology now for a few years with outstanding results. And one of the, one of the things I always get is how sustainable it can be that they've let loose of the fear of, Oh my gosh, I can have an occasional dietary transgression on a holiday or a birthday and not have this enormous amount of guilt that can often be more harmful than the consumption of the food itself, just through the stress and the, then the, and the cortisol secretion. You know, there are other people out there that, that believe the same thing that I do. They just approach it a different way. Some people in this carnivore keto space have also learned that long-term long ketosis may be a bad thing for many people. Now, there are some out there that advocate having a large amount of protein in one meal to get you out of ketosis because of the gluconeogenesis effect. 
if that's how you want to do it, I think that's great. But for me, having a small carbohydrate intervention from certain carbohydrates that do not affect me poorly, I feel like I'm getting the best of all worlds when I do this. And it's not just an excuse to eat carbs. It's very structured and very calculated. And I generally don't eat hardly any carbs on my off days. You know, just this last weekend, I was off from training on Saturday and Sunday and even went out and did two 40-minute rucks with 65 pounds on my back. One of those days, I had nothing but an element. I downed an element drink prior to that. And on Sunday, I had half of a banana and an element and went out on a 40-minute crushing trail ruck. And then the rest of the day, it was all meat and eggs. That's it. So the moral of the story is this. Look at everything in terms of your nutrition, your training, even your recovery, through a logical, rational lens that is also supported by the scientific literature. And yes, you have to cherry pick that because so much of it is bought science or funded by nefarious corporations who want to trick you and do nothing but benefit their shareholders. So my goal is to nourish myself in a way that I can optimize my performance, focus on longevity and health, feel amazing, always produce very good blood work, and know that I am creating an environment that will sustain me long into my 70s, 80s, 90s, God willing, as far as I can push the limits of this body. I always want to be the freak in the room. So when I'm 75 years old, again, God willing, I want to be that guy that nobody would believe is operating like a 75-year-old man. I always want to strive to be in the 1% in everything that I do and everything that I am and be the best influence that I can possibly be on my family, my children, my grandchildren, and those out there who put their trust and faith in me for what I do. So now that I have this out there, I plan on expanding on this information regularly as we go, because there's going to be so many questions that arise from this, and justifiably so, because we just kind of again, covered the broad strokes today. And as I was planning this particular video, I knew that we were going to be able to travel down so many rabbit holes as we continue to walk this path together and uncover what exactly it will take for you to achieve your greatest level of performance and your greatest genetic potential. Optimized hypercarnivore living. That's what I call it. This approach has served me very well so far, and I fully expect it to continue to do so. And some of the results of the people that I work with one-on-one -on -one has already been staggering. I did a one-on-one -on -one Zoom consultation yesterday, and I encourage you to go to my website, robgoodwin.com, Rob or 
carnivorebodybuilding.com and take advantage of the 90-minute consultation where you and I can sit down, you know, in this great medium of the interwebs and have a a face-to-face real conversation and just kind of really dig in to the nuances of what you're trying to achieve and what you're trying to do and have this great conversation and kind of put together a blueprint that's going to help you live your greatest optimized hypercarnivore life through nutrition and training. So I'm just, I feel very, very blessed to have the opportunity to do what I do on a daily basis. And I feel very blessed that as crazy as the culture we live in is currently, we can use technology like this for good and not evil and reach out across the landscape and uh, help others out because at the end of the day, it's your care for others that is your true measure of greatness. So thanks for hanging out with me today. I hope this initial foray into my hyper carnivore lifestyle or optimized hyper carnivore lifestyle was intriguing and engaging for you. Uh, Please leave a comment below. Uh, And again, if you have any desire to work with me one-on-one, Uh, All the links are below in the show notes. And, you know, again, please hit that subscribe button. I really want to try to push this information out there and help as many people as I possibly can uh, who have a willingness to do so. So, hey, thanks for being here. I really, really appreciate it. Now go out there, train hard, diet harder, but above all else, do whatever it takes to have a great day. God bless.